Thanks, Molly. You guys are so good at everything you do. Yeah. I realized in the middle of saying that that didn't sound sincere, but I actually mean it. You both are really good at everything you do. We had uh, welcome. My name is Matt Moberg. Thanks for being here at church. Um, grateful that you came through this Advent season. We are in a series right now called Low. But before we get to that, I, I got to get to something else. Uh, we had a board meeting this past Monday night. And in that board meeting, we had a conversation about family finances and how things are going in this house. And in that conversation, we decided that we really ought to bring you all in on it and give you a lay of the land and to make another ask as we approach the end of the year. Now, there's different ways we could go about doing this. We could um, put on a Sarah McLaughlin song, show photos of Debbie in distress. That'd be helpful. <laughs> we could... I'm just saying, there's options before us. The, the go-to that I've seen in a lot of places is the very emotional, um, the very emotional, like when you give to church, you are giving to God. And when you keep for yourself, you are stealing from God, which is bad theology, but it is good manipulation. And so I understand why people do that. It makes sense to me. But so I'm just going to go the other route and just tell you, uh, what, what's going on and be direct and treat you like adults. A couple of things. This past fall, we brought Debbie Manning on full time. Woo woo is right. And in order to um, adjust the budget for her salary and her demands on a company car, we made an ask on the community to, to give. And a lot of you did. It is actually overwhelming to, to see how much you guys stepped forward and leaned in and saw a need and responded immediately. When we made that first ask, we had 39 recurring givers giving $13,000 a month. Every month we had 39. That's what we were at when we made the ask. When we, when we got a response from the ask, that number went from 39 givers to 46 givers giving $15,000 a month. And that is not even on top of that or to the side of that or supplementing that is the thousands upon thousands of dollars that we also had come in through one-time gifts. That is all incredible. That is good. If not great news, we are overwhelmed. We are grateful. This is the best church that has ever existed. And I say that humbly and without bias. This, we don't have, nobody else has the kind of people that we have in this room. That's the good news. We still have a gap. In order for us to get where we are trying to go, uh, we need to go from $15,000 a month to $17,000 a month in recurring giving. And so here's our ask, and I'll just make it as straightforward as possible, is if you find the table to be your home, If you find the table to be your home, or like it feels like it's starting to become a home, and you have yet to sign up as a recurring giver on our website, I would ask that you would consider to do that. Um, if you are currently giving and you're already doing the monthly giving, if you would consider jumping in and doing a little bit more, I would ask that you consider doing that. The reality is, and we're reminded of it all the time that you don't need me to tell you, but it is a dark day in a cold world that we live in. And wherever there is good news and light of liberation breaking forth, be it here or in other, some other space or in some other group of people, we need all of us to be investing in all of these places. If we really want to see love win, like we say we want to see love win, 
then we need to be pouring in. And the table is one of many places. But if you call this place home, then lean in and join us in this. Again, we are so grateful for all of you who have said yes to that already, who have jumped into uh, this commitment as a family, but also said yes to live it out in our calling. And collectively, we've seen that happen in thousands of ways. This is one manifestation that we are asking you to consider. Capiche? Capiche. When we talk about family, I want to say some, I, I don't use that language flippantly. You know, we talk about, whenever we talk about giving, we do talk about it as a family. This is a family affair. These are family finances. We are asking questions about how we keep the lights on in the family house. And, and we say it with those words. We use that metaphor because I do think that's the tasks that we have been called to take on. We are not a, a uh, democracy. We're not a monarchy. We're not a country club with a tax-exempt status. We are a family. And that's not my words. That's Luke's words. Luke in Acts 2, when he sizes up the church, when he gets a lay of the land, he first sets his eyes on what it looks like for these people to actually respond to Christ's invitation to follow. The first thing he says, of all the things that could have been said, he said, when I see them, I see a family. Yeah, they don't all look the same. They don't all vote the same. They don't all believe the same. They don't all smell the same. But when their brother goes broke or their mama is starting to slip away, they all seem to lean in, show up, and make sure that they get through the other side. I look at those people and I see a family. That's what the church is. We are a family. We are called to be a family. That is the dream that God has always dreamed. And that should cause you pain because that is something that we have always dismissed. Every night that you turn on the news, especially again in heated times like now, every night that you turn on the news or every time that you step into a stuffed elevator and it's silence, it is a painful reminder that God's dream of a world filled with siblings has been turned into a world replaced by strangers. We don't know how to exist amongst one another, let alone be not afraid of one another. We don't know how to be the family that we were called to be. We have forgotten that when God breathed into the dust at the very beginning, he did not breathe into a specific demographic. He said that we are all made of the same sweaty stuff. We all come from the same source, and so don't get it twisted. That person you do not know, they sit at the same family table as you. Because we're a family. We forget it, but we're a family. And it breaks my heart because every time Christmas comes around, we're reminded that that's the explicit reason why Christmas first came. Jesus came to strip the world of strangers and reintroduce us to the reality of siblings. Jesus didn't come so that we, he could separate one people from another person. He came to take down the structures that made us ever believe that we were separate in the first place. To make us see soberly for the first time for many of us that we are actually all one. That is how the truth will set us free. But we also know that it won't do so freely. Because to, to be honest with you, and if you're honest with yourself, you agree, Molly. It's more convenient 
to have our us's and our them's. It's more convenient to have a clarity around who's on our team and, and demonize who isn't. Because if they're not on my team, if they're not in my family, then they're not my responsibility. Do what you will with them. Do what you will with the poor. Do what you will with the elderly. Do what you will with the immigrant. Do what you will with whoever your them may be. It's easier that way. But at the end of the day, for those of us who pledge allegiance to the son of liberation, Jesus Christ, remember that he said that at the end of the days when all of your doing is done and your deeds are through, whatever you did for the least of these, not the less of these, not the lost of these, but the least of these brothers of mine, these siblings, your family, you've also done for me. And my hunch is that when Jesus said those words, he said them with his mother on his mind. Because Mary was one of the least of these. We don't often think about her that way. When we think about Mary, my hunch is that many of us, we tend to think about her like this. This is the preferable Mary that we tend to pitch inside of this season. This is the one who has nothing to say to our politics, who holds sheep but never her own opinion, who is white and blue-eyed and wrapped in blue clothing. And that's ironic because the color blue in clothes was reserved only for the wealthy at this time, which means that Mary would have never worn something like this because she was one of the least. She wasn't one of the wealthy. She She didn't belong to the elites. She was of the least. Mary was a poor Dark-skinned, teenage, unwed mother from the boondocks. Uh, She didn't have any money. She didn't have a voice. She didn't have any power. What she did have was the boots of Rome on her neck and the hands of the temple in her pockets. And what she would have given at that point right then, like many of us would give for this point right now, To have somebody stand up inside of her family and say, this isn't right. The way things are cannot be the way things continue to be. Something needs to change. Something needs to break. We need to disrupt the system. Why is everybody sitting still when the status quo is suffocating so many? Why does nobody care? Because a lot of people didn't care. A lot of people still don't care. We forget about this when we study history. We talk about especially the Christmas season and people like Caesar Augustus. It's so easy to cartoonize them and make them into this evil villains. And we certainly have material to do so. But just remember that for many people who existed in his empire, things weren't so shabby. If you were living under the reign of Caesar Augustus, you had new roads. You had sanitation. You had access to clean water. You had poetry, drama, philosophy. You had democracy. For some people, it wasn't so bad to be in Caesar's corner. In the same way back then that they had these systems of hierarchies that said these people have value and these people do not. We have those today. I don't need to tell you this, but I will. This is redundant because we talk about it all the time. But let's pause and reflect in, the, in honor of Mary. 
the reality of our dysfunctional systems that we continue to swim inside of today, the reality that in our systems today, the default empire ways of the world, we still value male bodies over female bodies, white skin over darker skin, heterosexuality over homosexuality, wealthy pockets over empty pockets. The same thing, different season. Same system, different season. What does it look like to change that? Just like back then, there were the then, they had the haves and the have-nots, those who have power, and then there are us who tend to protect the status quo. I think about Dr. King, who was raised in the spirit of Mary and in the space of the margins. Because Dr. King has this moment 50 years ago where he is going to white churches and he's reaching out and he's asking them, you guys, you see Jim and Jane Crow in the destruction that it is leaving in many people's lives. What can we collectively do? As a people who pledge allegiance to the son of liberation, what is the work of liberation that we can take on together? What will it actually look like for us to give our lives away for those who are having their lives taken away? And King comes to this conclusion when he goes out to these many white churches and he recognizes that not a lot of people are actually interested in doing the work. We want to pontificate, want to write songs, start book studies. But to actually do the work, ah, come on, it's a little, little much. And King says this, some people feel that their attempt to preserve segregation is best for themselves, their children and their nation. Many are good church people anchored in the religious faith of their mothers and fathers. What a tragedy. Millions of black people have been crucified by conscientious blindness. Jesus was right about those men who crucified him. They knew not what they did. They were inflicted by a terrible blindness. This terrible blindness is not some strange epidemic, it is a strategy of the empire. It goes by many different names. It's the cozy and the comfortable. One of the names that we would call it is the middle class, where many of us reside, where many of us are close enough to see the fire without actually ever being burnt. Many of us are close enough where we can hear all the barking without ever having to run the risk of being bit. Many of us can learn about the struggles in the world without ever having to struggle with the strugglers. We can see the wound without ever seeing it in our own skin. For many of us who live in the middle class, it is a place that is dangerous for the soul because it neuters the call of Mother Mary and her son Jesus in our lives. It's not a mystery that whenever we bring up politics in the church, the people who come up and tell me that I shouldn't bring up politics in the church are never poor. They tend to be middle class. Don't talk about the shards of glass in our food, says the people who do not have shards of glass in their food. Or you think about things like um, last night in North Minneapolis, we had another shooting. Another man was killed. And so when we try to have these talks and these conversations about what do we do about guns in our country? What is a collective way forward for us to link arms and actually pursue the common good? Immediately somebody will come up to me and say, don't you politicize this. Which is the same thing as saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. 
we don't talk about these things. Just keep on keeping on. The system is working for us, even if the system isn't working for all. But if the system isn't working for all, the system isn't working for us because we're a family. That's the dream that God dreamed. So when are we going to be willing to forfeit the nightmare that we have clung to? The sick thing about empires, how they tend to work more often than not, is that they not only privilege certain people off of the pain of others, but they also keep the pain very hidden. And they keep the pained, the ones who are actually struggling, very silent. And we allow that to happen. That's true today, and that was true back then. We don't want to talk about the ruptures in society. We want to allow just the people on top to call the shots and dictate the terms of engagement between one another. One of those people in the Christmas season that we ought to remember is not just Mary and not just Jesus, but also the man named Zechariah. A guy who sat at the top of the totem pole, a priest who is in power. A man who is a good man by all stretch of the imagination, did things well, treated his wife good. There's no beefs to register about Zechariah. But he also wasn't disrupting very dysfunctional systems. He wasn't trying to turn God's dream into our reality. He wasn't leveling the playing field that was leveling so many lives. In the moment that Luke first speaks about the angel Gabriel interrupting history and saying that God is coming with a new and better word than all of the words that were coming for, he went to Zechariah. And Zechariah had doubts about what this would look like. And so would you if everything that you knew to be your comfort, your sense of security, your sense of reality, how you understood the world to work, it looked like this. And now God's saying it could be wider, could be warmer. Winter could be over, not just for you, for, but for all. Zechariah reacts with some anxiety and some doubt, and God takes the mic from the powerful person's hand, and he hands it to a young girl named Mary. That is the beauty of Mary's scripture today. In a moment, I'm going to show you what has been called the most muscular poem in the history of the world, Mary's Magnificat. And you'll see how powerful it is, how revolutionary. You'll understand at first glance why multiple governments have banned it from being read in public settings. Think about that. One poet said that when you read this, this text, you can't help but smell the gunpowder on it. Because it was written and it was spoken and it was sung with a raised fist in the air. While I've always paid attention to this text... While it's always had a special place for me, what's striking me this Christmas is not just what Mary says, but also who is not allowed to speak. Zechariah goes mute. Zechariah can't say a word. And when the privileged and the powerful people like me are being told that they have to pass the mic to people like Mary who live in the margins. We wake up to the reality of God's dream and we hear the beauty of what could be. Will you stand and read Mary's song with me?
And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Pause. When we, talk, when we sing this song in many churches, as we will do throughout this season, this is where the hymn, hymn tends to end. We sing about my soul glorifies the Lord. We sing about how our spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We go a few lines down, but then the song comes to an end. That is one way that singing Christian songs in an empire's land tends to get neutered. But the song kept going even if we stopped singing. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Keep reading. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You can have a seat. question isn't Mary, did you know, which friends do we? Do we know how good and robust and wild and free God's dream for our world really is? And are, willing, are we willing to take seriously all the structures that are keeping us from living into it? And what does it look like for men like me, privileged people like you? to pass the mic so that we can once again hear Mary from the margins. So we can once again hear God's heart held high. Rachel Held Evans says this about the poem. With the Magnificat, Mary declares that God has indeed chosen sides. And it's not with the powerful, but the humble. It's not with the rich, but with the poor. It's not with the occupying force, but with the people on the margins. It's not with the narcissistic kings, but with an unwed, unbelieved teenage girl. This is the stunning claim of the incarnation. God has made a home among the very people the world casts aside. And in her defiant prayer, Mary, a dark-skinned woman, a refugee, a religious minority in occupied land, she names this reality. And so we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to have the Christian and the band come up. And we're going to sing a song that's in the spirit of Mary's song that she sang. And this is a song that both names the cracks in society today while also expressing the hope that we hold. And maybe that's the best we can do, right? Is be sober enough to see where things are falling apart. But to recognize that we are standing upon the sources that is going to hold us together through it all. And so will you stand and will you sing with us as we get into, Christian, you get to go? Keep going. Will you stand and sing with us? Go. Go. There's a lot of words, so just keep up best you can. 
how they always been they intend to stay I can't explain why we live this way we do it every day preachers on the podium speaking of saints prophets on the sidewalks begging for change old ladies laughing from the fire escape cursing my name Spend your life working for something Just to have it taken away People walk around pushing back their tits Wearing paychecks like necklaces and bracelets Talking about nothing, not thinking about death Every little heartbreak, every little breath It's how they always been 